Michael, are you celebrating anything special today? Only another Saturday here with you and our listeners. That sounds like a very fine reason to enjoy the latest release from Veuve Clicquot. Its new vintage, La Grande Dame 2012, is delicious and it looks as good as it tastes. Thanks to the iconic Japanese artist, Yayoi Kusama, who created original artwork for the bottle. Kusama's vibrant and cheerful design is an homage to the Grande Dame of Champagne, Madame Clicquot, who took over the production of Maison Clicquot Champagne back in 1805 after her husband died. It's a beautiful way to celebrate any and every occasion. La Grande Dame 2012, the newest vintage from Veuve Clicquot. Happy Saturday. It's May 22nd, 2021. And there is a God because you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. There is a goddess and she is Ashley Baker. I'm I'm simply Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail, who is grateful to be in the presence of you, Ashley Baker, this morning. I love it. Well, Michael, I'm thrilled to be here with you. It's the best part of Saturday. I've got my iced coffee and we have a magnificent new issue of Airmail for your reading pleasure. We do. And lots, lots to discuss. But you know, but before we get to it, I want to tell you one bit of news I have from the previous week. Please. Okay. I did something for the first time I hadn't done in 18 months. Can you guess what it is? Go. You went to SoulCycle. Close. It was a kind of physical experience of a different sort. I rode the subway for the first time in 18 months. Wow. If you live in New York, you may know the phrase, what I call, sailors have what they call their sea legs, but New Yorkers have what you call your subway legs, which allows you, if you're very good, if you ride the subway a lot, to basically stand and read or do whatever you want to do and not have to hold on to anything. I'm a guy who never sits on the subway. I like to stand, but I don't like to hold the pole. And so you sort of like learn to sort of just as a sailor walking the deck. And my subway legs were all there. I felt really great about it. To me, riding the subway is one of the biggest gifts of living in New York City. I There's no time I feel more self-sufficient than when I'm like pinging around town on various trains. Exactly. And they report the news broke yesterday that the, for the first time in 18 months, the subway is back to running 24 hours. So that's a good sign of life returning in New York City. The other great sign I saw the other day is the New York City Marathon is on for the fall. So that's good news, too. I'm so excited, Michael. I'm going to try to manifest my participation in this marathon. What does that mean? You're going to try and do it or you're going to actually... Yeah, I want to do it. Great. I was planning on running it in 2020 as part of a charity team. And of course, that was canceled. So I'm going to try to make it happen this year. Now, that means I've got to start training, Michael. So you know where to find me this summer. It'll be doing endless loops around Central Park. Wait, here's my question for you. When you got on the subway, where were you going? I had to go uptown to meet someone for lunch. And I've been over these past few months riding city bikes around. But then I was running late and I thought, you know what? I thought, what am I not? Why am I not riding a subway? Like I just flew to Chicago, just got on a plane for the first time to see my mother for Mother's Day. And I thought like, well, if I'm doing a plane, I'm at like, what's this? Why am I avoiding the subway? So just basically, and I was amazed. My Metro card still worked after 18 months. So everything was good. But I'll tell you the best thing about the subway is that after 18 months, it feels like nothing had changed. There was even a guy singing on there. And here's the good part. When he passed the hat, he had a pretty great tagline, which I thought that should probably be the motto for the city for the last 18 months or whatever coming up. And he says, think positive, test negative. Where'd you go for lunch? I went to Serafina 
on Madison Avenue. You know where I went last week for the first time since the pandemic was Pietro's, the steakhouse on 43rd Street. Really a fun place. It's like an old school Italian steakhouse, but they have like, for my money, they've got the best spaghetti and meatballs in the city. And it's very bare bones, no frills type of place, but a lot of atmosphere. And just kind of like a fun, some people like Keens. It's all well and good. I happen to be a Pietro's person. We all have our preferences, but it's a lot of fun. My it's my, my son likes to go there and it was his birthday. Um, and, you know, of course he had to get his big steak and big old plate of hash browns and you make charlie sound like he has the appetite of like a, a 1980s gambino brother or something like eating at spark steakhouse charlie who's you know barely 10 what is he 10 oh, 10 no he just turned eight michael he just turned eight he's making him sound like he's paul castellano like he's gonna be like mom listen for my my, my eighth birthday I, I want the meatballs and i want a steak and i want a nice merlot come on let's go mom Michael, these are New York kids. Like, you know, their their idea of like a fun afternoon is like ambling into the Cooper Hewitt, having a steakhouse and perhaps running through Central Park or do bird watching there along the reservoir. Who knows? Absolutely. Not like what I was doing at that age, which was basically like watching reruns of the Golden Girls. Some of us are old enough to have watched Golden Girls in its original airing. You know what's so distressing about Golden Girls is like, look at the ages of the Golden Girls and it's like a little too close to comfort for like our <laughs> ages now. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like, wow, hmm, okay, guess I'm getting close to that. You know, I'm basically like Estelle's age at this point, at least metaphysically speaking. Anyway, Michael, let's get to the issue. We've got so many good stories to talk about. Where do you want to start? Well, I want to talk about the merits of being boring because you and I apparently have been doing this all wrong. We've tried to cultivate interests, develop a rich inner life. And apparently we have a great piece in the issue that argues that that kind of thing is no longer rewarded. Bored people get ahead. It's boring people get ahead, but it's also this is the thing that kind of has... Look, I think one of the sub-themes of the show today will be the rich are different from us, whether they're going through multi-billion dollar divorces like Bill Gates, or you'll get we'll get to a story coming out of London of someone selling the most expensive townhouse in London ever. So James Marriott wrote this piece this week, and it's really about how it used to be the mark of, of a sophisticated person. You wanted to have some creative outlets in your life. David Rockefeller collected... Beatles. People in the Victorian era, they sketched it, they drew, and they, they learned to play the musical instruments. And now it seems like all anyone does is like Mark Zuckerberg, he rides his hoverboard surfboard through the Pacific off the coast of Hawaii. They have no no creative outlets, no creative side to them, right? Yeah, exactly. And he talks about the role of social media in all of this, how it encourages us to justify our lives to an adoring public, to promote these images of ourselves doing very sane and normal things like having a fully functional pantry. And his hypothesis is that internet eccentricity can be dangerous because it can make you look like, you know, a non-stable citizen to potential employers and people in your social circle. And, you know, he talks about how the hobbyists, the dull, the impeccably CV'd, the workaholic chino wearers march ahead. It's a good reminder to all of us is like, we do places way too much value on being functional. You know, the other stem of this kind of like thinking is even if you have your people like they don't just do something that is creativity for creativity's sake then it's got to turn into a side hustle right it's not just like you know back in the day people were like i'm just gonna be a stamp collector i'm just gonna build ships in a bottle 
well, you can't make a side hustle out of that. But now it's like they want to do something and then figure out how to brand it and, and make it a brand extension of themselves, right? Yeah, and monetize it, right? Like if you can collect stamps, can't you also create an Instagram account for esoteric stamp collectors? And can't you become a stamp collecting influencer? Like there's <laughs> so little pleasure anymore for the sake of just doing strange little things. Or just go crazy with philately. What is philately? The study of stamps. Oh God, it is. Oh, I love it. It's going to be my DJ name, DJ Mad Philately. <laughs> so good. If, you wanna, if you're looking for me this weekend, I'll be just be spinning under that name. <laughs> DJ Mad Philately. Oh, okay. Speaking of the rich being different from us and esoteric habits and other strange things, let's talk about the Bill Gates divorce, the latest, the greatest, the essential news. I know you have been all over this story. So what should what should we know? right now. What are your theories and obsessions? As you know, I have a text chain of some interesting and smart girlfriends. And the news broke this week that Bill Gates had been inappropriate in terms of his relationships with women in the workplace, making unwanted advances, that kind of thing. Who knows what news will come out uh, by by the time that this podcast was released. But my girlfriends and I were texting about this and our consensus was brief. WTF. It's like even the most boring, sensible, do-gooder guy like Bill Gates, again, the Chino-wearing, like, productivity drone, like, even that guy has to be a huge disappointment. It's like, where does it end? Where does it end? I'm just disappointed because I thought he, if he was going to leave his wife for anyone, it'd be for Warren Buffett. You know, I just thought that that was, crush was on. But And then there's like this, there's the whole Jeffrey Epstein wrinkle. And there's a report today that he thought Epstein could help him get the Nobel Prize. I mean, it's disappointing, but Again, you know, the rich are different from us, but they're not. They're just like as boring as anyone else and stupid, you know. And here's a guy who had every, like, and then emailing someone, would you like to have dinner with me? I saw you in the meeting today. I think the big question on everyone's mind now is, can the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation go on? Trust how bad is this going to get? Because if it gets much worse, you can imagine a universe in which Melinda Gates no longer wants her name associated with Bill Gates, despite the incredible amount of good, it must be said, that the foundation has done globally. So follow this story because I think we're just scratching the surface here. There's going to be a lot more. Absolutely. All right. Well, on that bummer note, Michael, take us somewhere happier, please. Before we leave rich people, Ashley, we also have a very crazy story. Uh, If you live in the UK, I'm sure you're very familiar with the story. If you're in the US, not so much, but we've got fun piece of reporting this week out of London by Joseph Bullmore about the Candy Brothers, who are Nick and Christian Candy. They are real estate kind of developer guys in London, and they built something a few years ago called One Hyde Park in Knightsbridge about 10 years ago. And it featured at the time what was the sort of most expensive apartment in London. It's And it's now on the market for $241 million at the same time that the other brother is building a subterranean storehouse at One Hyde Park for his 57 cars. So I don't have much more to say other than if you have $241 million and you're looking for 18,000 square feet with a cocktail bar, a media room, a wine wine room, a nice view of, of Harrods, you can check it out. But that's a little bit tacky, if you're asking me. Michael, I'd rather just check into Claridge's, okay? See, that's why you are the goddess. <laughs> oh, I love it. 
Okay. Should we talk about the French wife who murdered her husband? Or is that too dark even for us on a Saturday? No, let's go for it. This is a crime that has gripped all of France and uh, become, she's, this woman has become a cause célèbre, if that's the way to say it in, in France, a woman named Valérie Becot. No? Yeah, so Valérie Becot finally reached her limit after four decades of abuse by her husband, whose name was Daniel Paulette. He had molested her when she was 12. He made her pregnant at 17 and then trapped her in this horribly abusive relationship for decades, and she bore him three more children. Then, in 2016, he was pimping her out for sex. And after one encounter with a, an especially horrible client, Beko finally had enough. She grabbed the loaded pistols and shot him. And when she told her two elder children that she'd killed her father, they hugged her. And then two of her sons and her daughter's boyfriend helped her bury his remains in the forest. And she's going on trial for murder. And this is a case that has completely gripped France. 384,000 people have signed a petition demanding her freedom. It's it's a pretty incredible story of, of not only one woman's strength and resilience, but also how the legal system is being challenged, you know, by the sense of moral rectitude that the French feel on her behalf. It's kind of put turned a spotlight in France on the subject of conjugal violence, which um, and 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 the few victims who dare to fight back. You know, France has not really looked at this subject so much in 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 public in society, and um, this is the case that's making people look at. Unlike the U.S., where a lot of these kind of burning bed kind of cases started to move through the system 30, 40 years ago. France has been a little slower to examine the idea that a woman trapped in an abusive relationship could have justifiable means for homicide. So it's a pretty fascinating piece by Peter Conradi in this week's issue, a crime story that has true deep implications in, in French society. Okay, Michael, well, please, let's get into slightly <laughs> cheerier territory if we can. <laughs> Let's take a break for a brief lesson in the history of Champagne. Michael, what can you tell me about Madame Clicquot? Funny you should ask. She was one of the original innovators in the realm of Champagne. All the way back in 1805, she took the reins of Maison Clicquot following the death of her husband. She was a risk taker and completely uncompromising when it came to maintaining the highest possible quality of her wines. She was also known for perfecting new innovations and expanding Veuve Clicquot's reach into all corners of the world. Today, her name is synonymous with excellence, and she is remembered as the Grand Dame of Champagne. And like Madame Clicquot, Yoyoy Kusama is a trailblazer in her field. She entered the art world at 28 and once said, I promised myself that I would conquer New York and make my name in the world with my passion for the arts and my creative energy. To celebrate the house's new vintage, La Grand Dame 2012, Kusama created a new design for its bottle and gift box that makes smart use of her polka dots to represent champagne bubbles. And as for the wine itself? It expresses Veuve Clicquot's love of Pinot Noir, which represents over 90% of the blend. As Madame Clicquot said, our black grapes give the finest white wines. It tastes as beautiful as it looks. La Grand Dame is a showcase of the house's excellence. Madame Clicquot and Yoyo Kusama lived 150 years apart, but they still created an unforgettable collaboration. That alone is worthy of a celebration. All right. Well, Michael, we have an especially great life in our Great Lives column this week. And we have Michael Lindsay Hogg here to talk about the incredible life of Norman Lloyd. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Ashley. Always good to be here. Oh, this, this is my first time. As they say on sports radio, long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> right. Okay. Michael, I love this piece. It's the remembrance of the actor Norman Lloyd, who died recently at 106, and who I first came to know, not through 
his career, which I'll have you sort of run through in a minute, but I came to know him through a show on TV in the 80s called St. Elsewhere, where he played Dr. Auschlander, and which featured, you know, he was kind of the grand old man there, but it featured a lot of up-and-comers at that point, a, a young actor named Denzel Washington, Alfred Woodward, Howie Mandel, created by Gwyneth Paltrow's father, or co-created. But, you know, by this point, it was kind of late in his career, but as he sort of writes so beautifully in this week's issue, he had an enormous career, which sort of goes back to his early days with Orson Welles, right? Yeah, he was a young actor. He wanted to be an actor from an early age. And so he was apprenticing himself to various theater companies on the East Coast of America from the time he was 17, partly to get rid of his Brooklyn accent. He then found himself in um, the Mercury, which was the extraordinary theater company, which was created by Orson Welles and John Houseman, which had a bunch of young actors, including Joseph Cotton, and a little bit later on, my mother, Geraldine Fitzgerald. There was a kind of New York shaking production of Julius Caesar, which went on in 1937-38, which Orson set in, let's say, fascist Italy, with Mussolini being a very nearby reference. Norman had a five-minute scene playing a character called Sin of the Poet, which was normally cut from Julius Caesar, but Orson wanted to keep it in. And whatever he did, whatever he played the scene, stunned the audience. This skinny little kid with red hair took the theater apart and almost eclipsed the performance of the other young actor, Orson Welles. His first movie was with Hitchcock, so that wasn't too bad. Right, and that first movie was Saboteur. Right. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, if, if your first film, you get directed by Hitchcock in Saboteur, where, as just to remind the audience, people who haven't seen it, he's got one of the great endings for a villain in a movie, probably, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can find online, it's a two and a half, two, two minute, 40 second scene about how they did it. Norman, who is the saboteur, is the villain called Frank Fry. He's then about 24 or something, is cornered by Robert Cummings, who plays the FBI guy. And Norman's character steps back to suddenly and falls over the railing and manages to hang on to the thumb of the Statue of Liberty trying to save his life. Robert Cummings, a decent decent guy in real life and also as his part, he goes and tries to grab Norman, but he grabs the sleeve of his jacket. And there's this most wonderful sequence uh, that Hitchcock put together of the wide shot built to scale. They, they, they had half of the, the Statue of Liberty in the studio, and then half was done by matte painting. And as Norman is hanging on, the fabric under the armpit of his jacket starts ever so slowly to rip. And so you have the fabric, fabric, and the sleeve is starting to get longer and longer. And so the sleeve is pulled away. He has no sleeve, and then he falls off the uh, Statue of Liberty and has no life. Someone asked him, what would he have done if he really was that character? And Norman said, well, I guess I'd have gone to a better tailor. So that was his first job with Hitchcock. It was his first movie. And because of that, Hitchcock and Norman became friends and collaborators really on and off for almost the rest of Hitchcock's career. Norman went on to produce Alfred Hitchcock Presents, did various producing stints with Hitchcock, I think might have been in another couple of movies. And when Norman was blacklisted, 
which was the, the penalty and the peril of the 1950s, Hitchcock came to his rescue. Hitchcock, by that time, was incredibly successful as a director, and he wanted Norman to work on his projects. And he was told by the studio, well, blacklisted, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, Mr. Hitchcock, you can't have him. And he said, I wish I could do the voice. Norman could do the voice perfectly. He said, pretty much, if you're not going to take him, you're not going to have me. And then he worked for the next, well, till he was 101. I think Amy Schumer comedy Trainwreck was among his last films, right? It was actually directed by Judd Apatow, who I think Norman had shot it when he was 100. This this life of Norman's, I think, was pretty, wherever he came from, however he landed in our midst, I mean, we were lucky. We were lucky to have had him for 106 years. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you both. Michael, before we head out, do you have anything at all you could recommend? I have two things I'm going to recommend, and they are, they actually were recommended by people on staff, but one of them is something that I loved is in our best section this week that Alessandra Stanley wrote up. I first heard about this from Graydon. I think you heard as well. It's it's a podcast called Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. Now, most people don't know, as Alessandra says, anything about the woman behind Paper Moon, Terms of Endearment, and Broadcast News. But this podcast, which is by Karina Longworth, it's 10 episodes and it's entirely devoted to Platt partly because her life was, as Alexander says, a doozy, but also because it, the trajectory of it echoes the progress of and backlashes against women in film from the 60s through the 90s. Now, she was married for some years to Peter Bogdanovich, the director, and she read Larry McMurtry's novel, The Last Picture Show. She convinced Peter to direct it, and then they worked on that film together, even the after Bogdanovich began his affair on it with Sybil Shepard. But Platt went on to produce for James L. Brooks. She wrote Pretty Baby for Louis Malle, and she designed the sets for Witches of Eastwick, among other things. And she discovered directors such as Cameron Crowe and Wes Anderson. So it's a terrific, captivating podcast, as Alexander says. So recommend that one very, very much. Something else that you can do for free if you live here in New York City is, I think it's being referred to as the largest public art installation in the U.S. that's be, uh, come along this year is now at Hudson River Park. And it is the sculpture Day's End by David Hammond. And it's made of these very slender steel pipes that trace the outline of Pier 52, which sat on the site. And it's a tribute to the artist Gordon Matta-Clark, who transformed that abandoned shed back in 1975 when he carved these massive openings into it. So it's a very beautiful ethereal sculpture that sits over the Hudson. I really recommend going to see it around sunset and it doesn't cost anything to do. Wow, great idea. Yeah, maybe next time you're here, you and I can take a little walk over there. Ooh, I like that idea. But you... Goddess, Ashley, what do you recommend for me this week? Well, I'm a little late to the game, but I am finally reading Hermione Lee's biography of Tom Stoppard, which came out in February of this year. Now, Hermione Lee is one of my favorite biographers. She wrote uh, an incredible look at the life of Edith Wharton that I loved and another book on Willa Cather that's wonderful if you if you're into that type of writing but anyway this is a this is a behemoth it's full of great detail it's illuminating and it's lively so Tom Stoppard fans if you haven't gotten around to it now's the moment and then on the culinary front I blame Alessandra for this one as well as Frank but Frank Bruni's 
A Meatloaf in Every Oven is a really fun book. It came out a few years ago. Michael, like I have gone through every cookbook on my shelf over the past 18 months. And so I need more. And Alessandra and Frank are masters of meatloaf. What can I say? Frank even wrote a book about it with Jennifer Steinhauer. And it's just a really fun romp through not only great meatloaf recipes, but a lot of conversation over this iconic dish. Oh, Michael, two things. Okay, so I went to some dinner parties this weekend, which by the way, I'll go to anything. So uh, the opening of an envelope, I'm there. But after COVID, it's so fun to get back in the mix of dinner parties. And both of them were with people, um, some people I knew, others I didn't, which is always the most fun. And one of them was was at one of the dinner parties I went to, everyone was talking about Mayor of Easttown, which we talked about on this show probably a month ago when it came out, but I forgot HBO releases stuff only once a week. So uh, people are really having a fun time watching that show unfold. And I'm so glad that everyone's enjoying it because we loved it too. And then the other show everyone's talking about, of course, is Halston. I like, I can't get enough of the show. It's like so visual, so campy, so dramatic, so compulsively watchable. It, it just makes me want to go back and like read everything there is to read on Liza Minnelli too, by the way. You should go back and watch Cabaret if you haven't watched that recently. We talked oh, about I haven't. Yeah, that's a good one. Oh my God, you got to watch it. Like it's just this, it totally holds up. Yeah, gives you new appreciation for how really talented she is and especially at that moment watch that and then watch all that jazz the bob fossey biopic i saw fossey on broadway and i i absolutely love that show michael broadway reopening september 14th what are you gonna see okay you're gonna laugh at me and i'm fine with it i want to see hamilton again because i've heard a rumor that lin-manuel miranda is growing out his hair potentially to play hamilton again that's the that's the rumor that would be amazing I would believe that. In New York, you can be a new man. Goddamn right. That show, like every time I listen to the music from that show, I'm in a better mood. I love it so much. And yeah, I think it's time. If I have to pay $400 for a ticket, Michael, I will. Let's go together. 100%, Michael. You buy the tickets and I'll Venmo you, baby. Let's make it happen. Do you think we can expense it? Yes, even better. <laughs> While we're at it, by the way, it's been cool to see a lot of our favorite venues in New York start releasing their schedules. It's been exciting to see musicians coming back in full force. There was apparently a Bon Jovi concert in the Hamptons. I could miss that. But I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of our summer is a time where you can always find us at Summer Stage in Central Park and out in Prospect Park in Brooklyn. And there's just so many great summer concert series. And I'm really hoping that things get back to that. I want to see Bruno Mars again, Michael. I told you I'm going to be DJ Mad Philately. I'm doing a concert in Central Park. I don't know. I'm just going to be like, just watch my Instagram. I'm just going to drop it. And it's just so. All right, everyone. The DJ Mad Philately set is don't miss it. We'll all be there. And then I'm going to do an off-Broadway show called Stamp, not Stomp. Okay. <laughs> all right, Michael, before this devolves even further, will you please read us out and release us into our Saturdays? And Michael, let's give a special note of thanks to our partners, Vov Clicquot for soldiering us through the recording of this episode with a beautiful bottle of La Grande Dame 2012. Done. That's why we're in such a good mood, everyone. <laughs> Thank you to our partner for this episode, Veuve Clicquot La Grande Dame. To learn more or purchase La Grande Dame 2012, visit veuveclicquot.com. V-E-U-V-E-C-L-I-C-Q-U-O-T.com. Morning meeting is 
Produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back next Saturday with another edition of morning meeting in the meantime be sure and subscribe at apple music or spotify most of all thanks for joining us